0: The title of today's sermon is Power Over Life and Death, and it's taken from Matthew 9, verses 18 to 26. Well, we're glad you're here this morning. Trust you've had a good week. Trust you've had a good morning so far. It's beautiful out. Awesome to be alive, isn't it? Let's ask God now to speak to us in and through his word. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we're here to worship you. Speak to us, we would ask, through your holy word. Speak to our lives. Help us, Lord, to understand better what you would have us to do. Help us to live effectively, godly, righteously in this world in which we find ourselves, which is so anti May this text be a part of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, we've been hearing a familiar phrase banter about. This phrase is quite familiar to baseball fans, like myself. The phrase is, out of options. In the context of baseball, it refers to a player who has a major league contract who's been returned to the minor leagues for three consecutive calendar years. In each of those calendar years, he can go up and down from the majors to the minors endless times, but after three years, he is said to be out of options. Once a player is out of options, he must be made available to other teams by being placed on waivers. Many future great baseball players have been through the out of options um, baseball rule, only to be picked up by another franchise and then turn into a budding star. Examples such of this are Jose Batista, Jose Canseco, Josh Hamilton, Shane Victorino, Dan Ugla, and many others. However, recently, the phrase out of options has come to be associated with something other than a baseball rule our United Nations ambassador and our president have stated clearly that the nuclear North Korea is now run out of options. Unfortunately, we cannot send Kim Jong-un, or Rocket Man, down to the minor leagues, nor can he be placed on irrevocable waivers. Well, in this morning's text, we find there's another use for that phrase, Out of options. There is no plan B for the lives of people who are out of options. There's no other league for them to go to and to play in. They have tried everything known to man at this time to help themselves, but they find that they are completely out of options. When a terrible illness hits or you suffer chronic pain, where do you turn? If a man is staring death in the face and all seems too much to bear, where does he turn? The question this morning for us is this. When does one realize that he is out of options and there is no place to turn to? Now, I'm not trying to be dramatic. But the truth is, we often choose drastic and dramatic measures When we feel there is no one or no place to turn to for help. Matthew shares with us this morning two examples of people who felt they were indeed out of options. The first example is of a desperate man whose precious 12 year old daughter was at death's doorstep. The second example is a woman who had been suffering with a physical debilitating illness for 12 years. Now, as you'll recall, if you've been with us, the last time we were together, Jesus had just schooled the Pharisees about dining etiquette and Jewish traditions. His first lesson concerned the will of God in eating, in particular, eating with sinners. His second lesson concerned the issue of when too fast or if even too fast. These lessons showed that Jesus had power over all of mankind's traditions. As Jesus and his invited guests were finishing up their meal at Matthew's home, all of a sudden, a synagogue ruler from Capernaum came bursting into Matthew's home with a request. Well, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me then to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, where we pick up with verse 18. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find this on page six ninety six, excuse me, 966 of the Pew Bible. Here, Jesus will present another one of his credentials for his kingship. This text is found, as I said, on page 966 of the Pew Bible. And we begin in verse 18 of Matthew 9, where it says, While he was saying these things to them a synagogue official, came and bowed down before him. Jesus was in the middle of answering the question of John the Baptist's disciples about when they should fast, or if they should fast, when there is an interruption. Jesus is explaining to not only the Pharisees that are present and not only John's disciples that are there, but his own disciples why there is no need to fast when the bridegroom is present. Jesus, in his own way, in his own teaching, denotes a change in dispensations as he is doing this, when suddenly a distraught synagogue ruler is at his feet pleading for the life of his 12-year-old daughter, who is out of options. For she was a dead girl. From Mark's account, We learned that the name of this man is Jairus. He is a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. That means he has all sorts of responsibilities in running the local worship center. In the church today, we might think of him as being a deacon. These Jewish rulers acted in a very specific way. Righteous manner before the people that they served. This would have been totally out of character for a deacon to come and throw himself down at the feet of Jesus publicly. Now, as you know, Jesus was a controversial teacher among the Jews in Capernaum and throughout all of Israel. But despite all of that, Jairus comes to Jesus and falls at his feet out of great respect. Now, this might have seemed to those who were watching odd and a bit disturbing, but I think it was totally consistent with a man who was, as I said, out of options. A desperate man will will do desperate things. So he prostrates himself before the Lord Jesus as a man who is truly broken, who has no choices, good choices, left to him. Jairus, as you probably have guessed, Lived in Capernaum. So he was quite familiar with this itinerant preacher, Jesus. He was familiar with his teaching and his miracles. J- Jairus lived in the community and he ministered there in his position as a ruler of the synagogue. Now, he was not a Pharisee, nor was he a uh, scribe. He would be more considered a town elder. This gave him the authority. Uh, shared with others over organizing worship at the synagogue, over selecting who would teach and read in the synagogue and who would lead the worship service there as well. Uh, he, they were also responsible with maintaining the synagogue itself, the building. And they had great influence in community affairs. Without a doubt, Jairus was a man of influence. So, he had much to lose by doing what he did in respecting Jesus and falling at his feet it's worthy to note that Jairus being a man of wealth could have chosen to send a servant to fetch Jesus but he went himself Jairus' request of Jesus therefore is made directly to the Lord he came asking not for the for the healing of a sick daughter but he wanted a miracle from Jesus the raising of his beloved child who had Died. Now, unlike King Herod, who asked Jesus to perform a miracle for him, as you know, Jairus did not make a demand. This was his request. Jairus did not come asserting himself as a uh, master over Jesus, but more of that of an equal. Jesus was to him someone who was his last Chance. And he came making this request, not as a master, not as a slave, but as a father begging for the life of his child. He said to Jesus, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jairus, being a man out of options, believed that the only thing that could help his daughter was Jesus. Now, the other synoptic writers, Mark and Luke tell us that Jairus made his way to the Lord and as he was going, a servant came to him from home and in the midst of speaking with Jesus told him that his daughter had just died. Matthew compresses all that information to make the text a little bit shorter. So he gives his respect to Jesus and he makes this request. If you will just come and touch my deceased daughter, she will live. In one sense, I think Jairus' faith in Christ was a little bit shallow. He sees Jesus as only having enough power to heal his daughter. And in fact, you might think of it as a mystical or a magical thing, a magical ability. He believed that Jesus had to be present for this to happen, he believed that Jesus had to touch his daughter for this healing to take place. Well, Jesus being a man of compassion, a man who was presenting himself to Israel as their king, we read in verse 19, he got up, I assume from the banquet table at Matthew's house, and he began to follow Jairus, and so did his disciples. Again, in the other accounts, we find out that this is not all of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus, but only the inner three. It was only James, John, and Peter who went with him. We might ask, why just these three, not all 12? It could be that the others in the group didn't want to be contaminated by a a corpse. Or uh, they were in the midst of conversations with others at the table at Matthew's house. It could be that Jesus only wanted to take these three. That would be my uh, opinion. That he wanted to teach them something further about himself. Well, Jesus was a Jewish teacher. He was a man under the law, and he understood that if he went there and touched the body, according to the book of Numbers, he would become defiled for seven days. He would be unclean. We read of this in the book of Numbers, which tells us, I'll read it for you, the one who touches a corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. The one shall Purify himself from uncleanness with water on the third day and the seventh day and then he will be clean But if he does not purify himself on the third and the seventh day, he will not be clean Anyone who touches a corpse the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself defiles the Tabernacle of the Lord and the person shall be cut off from Israel pretty serious stuff. Don't you think? Moses goes on in this text to tell us of further further consequences for those who would touch a corpse. One thing he can be sure of is no Pharisee, no scribe, no religious elite in Israel would have ever honored Jairus' request. Jairus was actually asking Jesus to come and put himself in spiritual jeopardy. Now, Jairus was a religious man. He... Kept the law. He ran the synagogue. He knew the truth of these verses from the Mosaic law. And yet, when the rubber hit the road, when he was out of options, and his daughter was lying dead in his home, all of his religious beliefs became powerless to himself. All of that went out the window. He was going to learn a powerful lesson about the law. The law kills, but the spirit gives life. I want to stop here and remind you just once again of something. And that is, Jesus had great compassion for people. He loved people, but that's not why Jesus did miracles. Jesus didn't just do random miracles to make people happy. Unfortunately, that's what many in the church Today, believe. He didn't do this miracle out of compassion for Jairus because he was hurting. Did I miss something? He didn't heal this young girl to please Jairus, his friends, and his family. Jesus did this for a much greater purpose, a much bigger purpose. Reason And Matthew makes that very clear to us, the purpose of the miracles that Jesus did in chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, Matthew states that the miracles of Jesus, and I'm going to give you a synopsis of what he says, and then I'm going to read the verse for you. Jesus validates his claim to be the Messiah King by the things that he did. He fulfills the messianic signs that showed him To be the Messiah. Jesus identified himself as the Messiah by these actions. In verse 5, Matthew says that Jesus came and the blind received sight, the lame walked, the lepers were cleansed, and the deaf could hear, and also the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This identified the Messiah. Jesus was who he said he was. He did the things that only the Messiah could do. So the question is was Jairus' faith in Jesus as the Messiah king, or was it as a miracle worker, a healer, if you will? Did his belief, his faith that's spoken of here, mean that he believed in Jesus as the promised king? Well, when Jesus was met by Jairus, he came. His daughter was close to death, and she dies in the midst of their conversation. And Jairus believes that Jesus can make his daughter well if he would come directly to her, if he would touch her. So we see that he's interrupted Jesus in the midst of a meal. Now we see there's another interruption in verse 20. Jesus is in the midst of ministering to people. And there's an interruption. And this time it's by a woman who is sick. A sick woman in verse 20. Look with me there. A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. Matthew tells us nothing outside of the fact that she was sick and had been going on for 12 long years about her background. It's a lengthy time to be afflicted, don't you think? None of us would want to be sick for 12 years. However, Mark and his account gives us a little bit more information about this unnamed woman. There we read that she'd spent all of her monies on doctors and cures in an attempt to stop what's called the hemorrhage here, or her bleeding. Back in the day, there were lots of natural medications that were given out by those who were considered doctors during their time. They would recommend such things as alcohol for the stomach, Mandrake, balsams, gums, spices, and oils for various other illnesses and uh, sufferings to relieve them. Apparently, none of these homopathic methods had been successful for this woman. As Mark says, she endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had, and yet she was not helped at all. She was out of options. In fact, Mark tells us, but rather she had grown worse. The rabbinical books from this time period, Talmud and Mishnah, are filled with such silly cures for the illnesses of people. Remember, they were written by rabbis. For example, in Shab 110 A and B, one cure is offered for the sick that tells the ailing person to carry ostrich eggs, now get this, with barley corn that has come from the dung of a white donkey, yikes, and put that around one's neck and you will be healed. Just imagine all of the types of grotesque cures that this woman might have gone through, fostered on her by those who called themselves doctors during this 12 years of her suffering. Yet none of them helped her, and she was in fact made only worse. Yeah, with dung around your neck, I can understand why. Now, I've known lots of people who have been sick and gone to doctors They've suffered greatly, and many of them have only gotten worse at the hands of doctors. That's not the result of the fact that the doctors were bad. It's just because we don't have a clear understanding of the human body. However, when you're out of options, you will do anything to try to find a cure. Now, this des- this desperate woman was at that point, and we see her request of Jesus uh, next as she comes to him. Now... Let me clarify something for you. This is not just a physical illness. This is also a spiritual illness in Judaism. For in Leviticus chapter 15, we read that when a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever she touches will be made unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall be unclean. This poor woman is in awful straits. No one can be around her or they will be Forever unclean. Can you even imagine that? All those that she's relied on for support, her family, her friends, and her priests, have to distance themselves from her, otherwise, they will be ceremonially unclean. That means she couldn't be around other people. She was probably not only sick, but lonely and spiritually drained. She couldn't attend temple. Otherwise, she'd make everyone unclean. She couldn't go to the synagogue. Otherwise, she'd make everybody unclean. She was probably, from this loss of blood, tired and longing for a fix. Essentially, her life was ruined. Now, since the physicians of this world could not help her, but only made her worse, her only choice was to turn to Jesus whom we know as the great physician. She was out of options. So she comes near to the Lord to touch his garment. We read of this in the next verse where it says, she came up behind Jesus and she touched the fringe of his cloak. Obviously being desperate, she did have the wherewithal to try to limit the attention of those around her who knew of her condition. She lived in this small town, got to quit bumping that mic, because everybody in a small town knows what you're doing. They knew of her condition, didn't they? They knew that she would make them unclean. So she sneaks up behind Jesus, if you will, and she touches the fringe of his cloak I think she does this in order not to be seen by others, to limit her exposure, if you will. I don't think she did this to stop the spread of her uncleanness to Jesus. I think she was just trying to have any kind of attention focused on her. So she approaches him from behind, and she grabs the fringe of his prayer cloth. This would have made any pious Jew seeing her recoil Out of fear and out of being made unclean. I also have the beanie that goes with it. But I'm not going to wear that one. I'm going to wear the one that has the Cubs logo. (laughs) Her actions. You know what I like about these things? Covers up my bald spot. She had the determination and the wherewithal to know that Jesus could help her. And she believed that in her heart. She had faith that if she just touched his clothes, if she got near to him and she touched him, that she could be healed. Does that sound reasonable to you? Does that sound mystical or magical to you? I don't know why it's doing that. Oh. Gotta get, gotta get a shave. Later on in chapter 14, Matthew tells us that the crowd pressed in upon him so that they might touch the fringe of his cloak and many were cured. Apparently that was a common thought about Christ in the community. The scuttled butt went around that if you just touched him that magical things happen. She's a desperate woman out of hope. She comes to Jesus, she touches him and she's expecting to be healed. But is her faith in him as the Messiah King? Does she really believe that Jesus is who he said he is? How much interaction did she have? with you? None of those things are told to us. The one thing that she knows is he does miracles and he has the power to restore her to health. As we see demonstrated clearly by her actions. She reaches down and she touches the fringe of his prayer shawl which he wore because the law commanded it. Jesus always obeyed the law. Numbers 15, we read, Speak to the sons of Israel, this is God speaking to Moses, and tell them that they should make for themselves tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations that they should put the tassels on each corner made of a cord of blue. And it shall be tassels for you to look at and remember all the commands of the Lord so that you should do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you have played the harlot. Moses states this again in Deuteron- the book of Deuteronomy. So, this is a principle that all pious, righteous Jews were to follow. Now, if you, as you have probably guessed, the Pharisees, who thought of themselves as being more righteous and spiritual than anyone else, enlarged the hems of their cloak, and they lengthened the tassels of their cloaks, and they made them a darker, darker blue. As blue as they could possibly make them. They did this in order to make themselves appear to be more spiritual than others. Now in verse 21, after she's touched his cloak, she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. Now as you know, that if signals a third class conditional clause that indicates her concept that if she does this, it will happen. She believed that if she touched his garment, get this, that she'd be made well. Sounds sort of magical, doesn't it? Mystical, doesn't it? But she would also, in that process, she knew this because she had to know the text from the Old Testament that she would make Jesus unclean according to the law. His prayer shawl, or talith, was to cover the head of the male worshiper, At the temple. If she touched that, she would be made whole. And as she does so, we read in verse 22 Jesus turned to her and seeing her says, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. At once, the woman was made well, according to Matthew. Jesus, being the perfect man, the last Adam, had a heightened sense of smell, touch, feel. Taste. When he sensed her hand coming on his cloak, he knew it and he publicly acknowledged her by addressing her affectionately as daughter. Now, Jesus certainly understood her need. He'd probably seen her before as he walked the streets of Capernaum and knew that she had some kind of a health problem. However, the Lord uses this sick woman who comes to him in faith as someone who can heal her to present as an, her as an object lesson of his power over life and death, over sickness and health. He presents his credentials to Israel as their Messiah King because he can restore life to the body, which only... The Messiah would be able to do. Now, I believe her faith was in Jesus more along the lines as a human healer, one who possessed some kind of mystical or magical powers. Now, nowhere are we told in any of the synoptics that she believed in him as the Messiah King. Maybe that followed this, I don't know. But the point is, is that Jesus is showing who he is by what he does. The Lord makes it clear that her faith In him was as the object of her faith. That's the point. That's why he acknowledged her faith. She had the right object of faith. What did she have faith in before? Physicians, cow dung, or whatever it was, and wrapping it around your neck. And notice the important words in this text it says, Your faith has made you well. People assume, oftentimes wrongly, that your faith is what's important. Oh, I have a lot of faith that this is going to happen. I have faith in God. It's not your faith that's important. It's the object in which your faith is in. That other faith is just terrible theology. She was made well because the object of her faith was in Jesus Christ. She had one choice left. She was out of options. What what would she do now? She would focus in on Jesus because she knew that he could make her well as he had power over life and death and over the body. Now, we often think the blessings of God are proportionate to the amount of faith that we can muster up. Anybody ever tell you that? I have a lot of faith, so this happened? That's just not consistent with the Bible. The Bible says that while we are faithless, he is faithful. It's not our faith that matters. It's his faithfulness. It's the object of our faith, rightly choosing the Lord Jesus Christ to place our faith and trust, whether that be big faith or little faith. God does reward people for their faithfulness, as you know through my ministry here, but God rewards faithfulness for obedience to His commands and will. There's a big difference. I can muster up all the faith I can. That doesn't mean that God's going to honor my faith. For example, I have huge faith. You're starting to really bother me, microphone. Try that. I have huge faith that God's going to give me a Harley Davidson. (laughs) I've told him, Lord, I know you can do this. Please give me a Harley Davidson. And you know what? It's disappointing. Every day I walk over to the parsonage and there's not one sitting there in the driveway for me. Yeah, my faith and Sue's faith are in conflict here. Matthew, unlike Mark and Luke, presents this woman's healing not as a result of her faith, but as a result of Jesus' word. Jesus did not invite her to touch him. Jesus did not seek her out. She sought him out. But it's Jesus' word that heals her according to the other synoptic Gospels. Now Jesus tells her here in the passage in Matthew to cheer up. To take courage, if you will. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago where we used the same same Greek word. What does she need to cheer up about or have courage about? The fact that her helpless condition was going to change because the object of her lesson was Christ. The object of her faith was Christ, I should say. When you're out of options, what you should do is go to the right place and the right person. When you are out of options, go to the right place. That is the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the right person. No one else can help you. Only the one who has power over life and death is able to help you. The place we can find help is in his word because that's where the person of Jesus is presented. Notice that in his words, your faith has made you well. We read that at once the woman was Made well. When he pronounced it, it happened immediately. Isn't that awesome? Even Amazon cannot respond to my desires and requests that fast. It takes two days, usually, or more. Even with Prime. To get my packages, I at least have to wait some time. But here, it's at once. Immediately, she is made well. How? By declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is who he said he is. He is the Messiah King. He is deity. He has power over life and death and the body. Jesus is identified as the Messiah by his power. So the key to understanding this text is the meaning of the word faith. It's not what you muster up. It's the object of your faith. It's faith in Christ, in the person of Jesus. So... When she turned to Jesus with her last hope, she was made well. Notice the Greek word there, sozo. You can put that up on the screen if you will. Made well means in the Old Testament, notice it there, is to be made well of a physical condition. Same as in the Old Testament when it uses sozo, salvation. It means delivered physically, not spiritually. So we can argue from that word that she is made physically well It has nothing to do with whether she trusted him as the Messiah King. Now this interruption probably bothered Jairus, don't you think? He said, well, what are you doing here? You know, I, I came and got you to go to make my daughter well. And here you are bogged down with this woman who's been here for years and you haven't paid attention to her up to now. Why? Why stop? You know... Life is difficult when we get interrupted and in doing something, don't you think? Don't you hate interruptions? Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered by interruptions, does he? He uses this interruption and the first interruption to teach his disciples. I think that's what's going on here. He's preparing James, John, and Peter, the inner three, to lead the church by showing them his great power. Who he is. He is the God over life and death. He is the God over the body. He's going to go find a dead girl in Jairus' house, but she's going to become a living girl, is she not? And in verse 23 we read when Jesus came into the official's house, that's Jairus's, and he saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. So here we have the, the narrative now shifts from in town as they were walking along and go by this going by this woman. They go back to Jairus's. They go to Jairus's house where this young girl is lying in a back room. Now some skeptics have, of course, argued that she didn't really die; she was in a coma, and Jesus simply arouses her out of a comatose state. That cannot be so. Why? Can't it be so? Well, first of all, when he gets to Jairus' house, who's there? The mourners. What is that? Dorothy. Oh! Skipping out on my sermon, huh, Dorothy? Hmm. They get to Jairus' house, and there's a funeral going on. The flute players and the singers were professional mourners hired by the grieving family. The rabbinic writings, again, the the Mishnah tells us that the poorest Jewish families were required to have two flutists and one singer. The funeral directors must have loved that mandate, don't you think? Anyway, it's noteworthy that Matthew, who is a Jew writing to Jews, notes this is taking place, and he inserts it into the text. He shows thereby his intimate knowledge of the Jewish culture. The house here is filled with mourners. And when the entourage with Jesus and Jairus arrives, they find the air is filled with a cacophony of noise. The whole community, including these two flutists and this mourner, are gathered around the outside and the inner portions of Jairus' house. I find it worthy to compare the experience of Jairus with that of the woman of the, hem- with the, woman of the hemorrhage. The two contrasting views we're getting of people, and Jesus is working in their life. These two people are polar opposites. She's a woman and he's a man. Well, I don't know what they'd say about that today, but back then they were. He was a powerful man in the community. And she was a nothing, totally anonymous. He was a leader in the synagogue. She couldn't even attend worship. He pleaded for his daughter. She pleaded for herself. His daughter was healthy for 12 years. She was sick for 12 years. His daughter died, but she would be made whole. He made his request publicly. She made hers secretly. But both had faith in the person of Christ, and he met their needs. Now at home, the noisy stuff was going on in the bathroom by those who had already assembled, and surely they believed this girl was not merely dead, but sincerely dead. In the first century, the burial of a deceased person, as you know, was to take place instantly after they died. Why? Well, because the decomposition of the body took place. So they, got, they, they called the singers and the flutists right away and they began the process of, of burial because she was going to decompose quickly in the heat of the Middle Eastern region that they lived in. And we read in verse 24, when the Lord walks in, he says to them, leave, get out of here, go away, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And what's the response of the mourners to this statement by Jesus that she is, isn't really dead, she's merely sleeping? They began to laugh at him. You know, the world laughs at our belief in an afterlife, don't they? They laugh at Christians for the things that we believe. Just as they, believe, they laughed at Jesus for teaching that death is just a separation It's not really eternal death or going down into the ground, and that's where you end up forever. It's just a separation from the physical body that will be rejoined at some point in time. Now, Jesus wasn't denying with this statement that she had actually died. What he was saying was that her body was simply in a sleep-like state. It was only a temporary state. For a moment, for the twinkling of an eye, her body could arise out of that slumber at any moment, depending on the call of God. In Luke chapter 8, the synoptic uh, text says this about this same incident. They began laughing at him, knowing, knowing that she had died. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. He, he gave orders for her to be given something to eat. So Jesus says she's asleep because he has power over life, death, and the body. Now, her death was very real. And yet, death is simply a temporary state. Jesus calls her back to life again at once. He speaks to her, and she comes back to her body and is alive. And she gets up immediately. Immediately she got up. Someday in the future, the Lord's going to call you and me out of our graves, isn't he? Unless he comes Today, or tomorrow, or while we're still alive. Paul tells us in First Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will arise first. She's sleeping, but there's the certainty of the resurrection. Death is not the end for believers or for the unbelievers, for the lost. Physical death does not mean you go to a netherland, a place that's urethral, unreal. No, Paul warns the Ephesians that the lost who are dead in the trespasses and sin will be raised to the judgment that will take place at the great white throne. So we read in verse 25 that Jesus reaches out to her. He took her hand. He took her by the hand. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered, and I believe, unlike the video, he went in with James, John, Peter, Jairus, and his wife, and he took her by the hand, and the girl got up. In Luke 8, we learn that's true. The three of the inner circle were there. Why did he bring them? To teach them, to prepare them for the coming role that they would have when he was gone. He was strengthening them. That's what this is about. It's not about Jairus. It's not about his daughter. It's not about the woman with the hemorrhage. It's about his disciples whom Jesus is teaching who he is. I am the God of life and death. I am the Lord who is the Messiah King. He took her by the hand, and we read that the girl got up. Did touching this corpse defile The Lord Jesus, no. Instead of death defiling him, Jesus defied death. Only God can make that which is ceremonially unclean clean again. And Jesus can never be defiled. It seems interesting that Jesus wasn't desirous of having a big crowd watch this whole thing go on. No, he doesn't call in all of the mourners and say, watch what I'm going to do and then tell all your friends about it, does he? Instead, it's just himself, the three inner circle members, James, John, and Peter, and probably the wife and the husband of the dead girl. Again, Jesus is building up their faith and trust in him for the difficult times that they will face. In the other synoptic gospel in Mark, we read that Jesus said to the dead child in Aramaic, Talitha cum." Which translated into English can mean little lamb, wake up. That's very, very interesting. Because in just a, a, a few short months, Jesus will say to Peter, Feed my lambs. I wonder if Jesus had in the back of his mind this little girl. Let me emphasize one more time that Jesus uses different methodologies in healing people and especially raising the dead. But the results are always the same. He speaks to them directly. Others he pulls up by his hand. And others still he calls forth out of their graves. Lazarus, for example. Isn't it interesting, however, that Matthew in this text chooses to use the word rise up or get up when Jesus instructs the young girl to come back to life it's the exact same greek verb used by matthew down later in his text in which he will tell in which he speaks of jesus rising up he got up out of the grave three times in matthew 26 i believe it is he said jesus arose got up the same exact word that's used here now we read the result of all of this In verse 26, it says there that the family of of, uh, Jairus was really happy, right? It says the woman went around telling others that her hemorrhage had been healed by Jesus, right? No, that's not what it says. It says the news spread throughout the land. Did you hear about this man, Jesus? He claims to be the Messiah, the king by his actions. Did you hear what he did? We heard that he healed a woman. And raise the dead. Here we learn two very important things. In this very short verse, we learn two things. First, Jesus has restoring power. Listen, my loved ones, if you are without options, Christ can restore you. Maybe not to full health, not from the grave, but he can restore you to real life, eternal life, the abundant life. But our faith and trust must be in him and his person, not religion, not some church with a name on it because you like it, Baptist or Presbyterian, in Christ. It's our faith in the person and the works of Jesus Christ that saves us and restores us. Secondly, we learn that Jesus didn't fail in his outreach to the Jewish religious elites. For some rulers, like Jairus, believed in him. We also learn later on that two came and would take care of his body, Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, one more. I trust you remember that. I can't remember. Uh Nicodemus, yes, thank you. I trust that Jairus and his wife were really happy that his unnamed daughter, was raised from the dead. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that we'll probably see them in heaven. How could they not trust in Christ after he had accomplished this in their life? But this miracle chooses to, this miracle's purpose is to exalt Christ as the God man, as the Messiah King. Jesus has demonstrated his power over our greatest enemies that we will face. Jesus has defeated sin death, and the grave. It's because of who he is. It's because of who he is that he can cure sickness, defeat demons, and control nature. None of our great adversaries, sin, death, and the grave, can hold us in its power. The grim reaper has no power over you any longer because Jesus can resurrect this child He can resurrect us and his fame. The good news of Jesus spread throughout all of Israel. Well, what does this mean for you and me today? When we have troubles, when we feel overwhelmed, when we are out of options, when there's no place to turn, don't turn to Oprah. Don't turn to Dr. Phil. Don't turn to Washington. Either Olympia or D.C., turn to Jesus Christ. When you are at the end of your emotional rope, become intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let any interruptions keep you from going straight to Jesus Christ. He is the God of love, grace, And mercy. He is the God who can restore. He has the power to meet every need in your life. Your expectations, however, must be in harmony with what the Bible teaches. You might come down with cancer and be on death's doorstep, but Jesus Christ can restore you to the abundant life. That might mean your physical life ends here and now, but that's just a blip on the radar screen of eternity. He offers you forgiveness and total acceptance based upon his sacrifice for sins at the cross of Calvary. There is only one choice that you can make. When you're out of options, turn to Jesus Christ and trust him for the abundant life, no matter how many days there are left. One or one million, trust him and him alone. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we are not a people without options. We have the greatest option of all. The first option, the only option, is Jesus. Help us, Lord, to embrace that truth today. And no matter what comes our way, no matter what trial or tribulation or difficulty comes our way, we will be secure in the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is the great healer and forgiver, the lover of our souls. We pray this in his name. Amen.